0: Hello and welcome to Mentor Dialogue, episode number 95. This interview is with Charles Thunberg, whom I had the great fortune to meet at South by Southwest in Austin a couple of weeks ago. Charles is founder and CEO of Civitas Learning with a mission that is close to my heart, to improve education. In this conversation, we hear about Civitas Learning's approach using the most sophisticated of data mining techniques to help higher education institutions to take better decisions and create better learning paths for their students. Parallel opportunities exist for businesses and HR departments, hoping to improve their ongoing educational support for employees. A truly fascinating topic, a great cause, and a powerful ambition. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to quick. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to The Minter Dialogue. Today I have from Austin, Texas, yes, the home of South by Southwest, someone who I met on my last trip, uh, thanks to Nathan, a good friend. And so, Charles, tell us who you are, what you do, and what is your mindset? Sure. Thanks
1: so much for having me on, Minter. Uh, Charles Thornberg. I am a uh, serial education entrepreneur. Uh, My latest venture is a company called Civitas Learning that is using predictive analytics to help colleges and universities improve their graduation rates. Um, And uh, my my current mindset is uh, utterly committed to doing something that
0: seems nearly impossible. I love it. Right. Well, so let's just go through a little bit back in your history because you, you have this, you're an entrepreneur dedicated to learning and you worked in, uh, in learning to startups and you spent a bunch of time at Kaplan. Tell Kaplan. Uh, so what I understand about Kaplan is that they is from my knowledge, of course, is they are SAT helpers. Tell us right. about your time at Kaplan and, and how much that was you know, important for you in, in understanding the learning environment. Yeah, well, I'll start
1: with a little precursor to uh, to my days at Kaplan. I, I accidentally fell in love with teaching as an undergraduate at Stanford. I was working my way through school nights and weekends, uh, working for a regional competitor of Kaplan. So another uh, SAT prep company, helping high school kids get ready for college entrance exams. Uh, and uh, truly, utterly unintentionally found that, that I was passionately in love with the experience of, of teaching, kind of flipping the light switch on for kids around an idea. Uh, When I was ready to graduate from college, I was uh, planning to go the more standard and mercenary path of investment banking or management (laughs) consulting or something similar. Uh, and, uh, one of the two guys that owned the business that I've been working for at that point for four years, took me out to lunch and, and said, you know, we'd love to, uh, move on and do something else with our lives. And we think you could do great things with the business. So we'd like to sell it to you. Um, my result, my response of course, was you realize I have no money at all. Nothing but a huge mountain of debt acquired over the course of four years of getting an education. Uh, they sold me the business for, for debt, um, which, uh, which was just a little bit more red ink and didn't feel like it hurt that much at that stage. Uh, and so I, uh, I bought a competitor of Kaplan, actually, was how I got started in the SAT preparation uh, business. But I found pretty quickly I was frustrated with the business model um, on two scores, really. First of all, we had very high prices and incredibly low margins, and that was largely a result of teaching kids sort of 20 at a time. Uh, and paying snot those college kids like me an awful <laughs> lot of money to teach those kids. Uh, and, and, and those two dynamics for a business model seemed problematic. So it was actually my, my first foray into, into the technology end of education was to try to fix the problems with that uh, initial business. So technology would give me an opportunity to solve uh, not just the, the flaws in the business model, but also kind of the bigger uh, social problem that I had with the business, which is it didn't get me that excited to get up out of bed every day to make sure Anyone with $800 had a better SAT score than anyone without $800. And so I thought technology could help us kind of take the content that had been developed over a decade in this business, which was really quite effective, and get it out to public school kids at scale at as close to no cost to students as possible. Uh, And so built a company called testtakers.com that literally did exactly that. We built reporting for teachers and reporting for principals and reporting for superintendents on top of this sort of diagnostic and prescriptive online delivery mechanism for the basic content itself. Um, and that actually is the business that I ended up selling to Kaplan, uh, which is what uh, which is what produced my my time at Kaplan. It's a it's an interesting truism, at least in uh, in American educational technology innovation, that many of the most innovative companies came from people who started in the test preparation industry. Um, and I think the reason for that is when you've got a pretty discrete set of content and really high stakes associated with learning that content. Um, it's incredibly uh, clarifying from an innovation perspective, and so you know many uh, educational technologies that have ended up sort of splayed out across a number of different paths found their initial roots uh, within educational technology uh, in test prep in particular. Not all of them apply equally well to the broader universe of content, but it's a uh, it's an interesting sort of. Uh, petri dish for new ideas and educational innovation. So I spent about nine years at Kaplan after having sold my business to them. I had started two other educational technology businesses after I started Test Acres, but before uh, the mm-hmm. transaction to Kaplan, uh, took that sale as a chance to really narrow my focus and became kind of an in-house entrepreneur at Kaplan, working across a broad variety of different businesses, not all of which were test preparation, interestingly. Um, some in K-12, just helping kids acquire basic study skills, and then about half my time on the higher education side, where we were working on delivering higher education using
0: technology at scale. Mm. So I just wanted to circle back on one point, which is you said you have the students, also the teachers. Do, and so you have a platform that has multiple uh, actors in the mm-hmm. learning. In, were parents involved in it? and and. We did. So
1: the, the com application actually started as a consumer-facing application uh, before we built the administrative tools that were for enterprise sales. So uh, from a consumer perspective, we absolutely did have a set of parent-facing tools there as well. One of the things that I found really early in my work in test preparation, and this is intuitive when you hear it, um, is that a huge part of the, the benefit of a structured test preparation program is it keeps students from gravitating towards spending their time in the way that we all naturally inherently would. Um, Human beings are wired to enjoy doing things that we're good at. And when you have a limited amount of time to prepare for an exam, think about it in its simplest form. There's a math section and a verbal section. We all are likely predisposed to one of those or the other, which means we probably ought to be spending some time on whichever one we're not predisposed on. That's where there's the the most room to run. Uh, But our natural inclination is exactly the opposite. And so we, we worked with a lot of students who found themselves spending an awful lot of time doing what they were successful at and felt good at and sort of neglecting the areas of the exam that they were weak at. Mm-hmm. So that uh, guidance, both in the form of helping to order curricula for students so that they're focusing on where their weaknesses are first and sp- appropriately, uh, but also sending some of that messaging to parents so they can help kind of reinforce that through a parent reporting platform is, is part of what we did there.
0: Very cool. So anyone with, with kids like mommy, me, <laughs> yeah. I'm taking note. All right. So um, Civitas Learning, tell us about Civitas. I mean, one of the things that you know, I was reading through your site, and as I understand it, it seems to me you, you never mentioned the word, but you are the cross-section of big data and education. Yeah. And, and so you, within your team, you've got you know really a lot of people who are data specialists. So, how do you, how do you manage? Gosh, I mean, there's got there's got to be so much data. How do you manage the data? How do you organize it? What platforms do you use?
1: Yeah, so um, the the first kind of spark of the idea for Civitas came uh, when I was at uh, Kaplan University, actually, which at the time was the second largest online university in the country behind the University of Phoenix. Uh, serving, I think at the time, probably thirty-five, forty thousand 40,000 students online. Um, I was COO of uh, of academics at Kaplan University, so I had a responsibility for those 40,000 students for about 3,000 faculty members, 150 or so retention advisors. And I was infuriated in that seat that, despite having hundreds of thousands of students who had sort of passed through our institution over the the previous several years, Um, There was no insight I could pull from each of those students' paths and all the interactions they had with one another and with faculty and with advisors to help inform improved decisions for our students today, to help increase the chances that they would be successful in their own educational journey. And it struck me that that uh, that that was an enormous opportunity. So what we do is not... Uh, Big Data for Big Data's sake. It is very much trying to capture the insight that is stored in all these millions of student stories, all the students that have come before, that unfortunately had to make these decisions in an utter information vacuum, all the faculty that had to deal with a, a group of incoming students about whom they knew almost nothing, all the advisors that had interactions, some of which were effective and some of which weren't by sort of serendipity and anecdote. We wanted to pull all that information together, which is today sitting in a number of different kinds of systems, create a, an integrated sort of normalized, comprehensive set of data around what's worked and what's not worked for which students on which timeline and then use that to kind of surface insights that we can then deliver to the front line of learning today and help improve decisions getting made all day, every day at the institutions that we work with and ultimately lead to more students graduating. Um, that's sort of the, the North Star for our work at, at Civitas Learning is to help more students get across the line. That said, higher education is really the entry point for us. The, the view and the vision here for me was born of having watched innovation after innovation be born in education, with no effective way to measure which of those innovations is is Mm. successful and for whom. And so I I had this view that if we could create a sort of K-to-career layer of learning-related data um, across millions and millions of students, we'd have the ability to help optimize decisions all the way along. It's not about a big black box telling you what you have to do next. Uh, It's about removing the complete ignorance of every student who's come before that exists today in really all sort of actors across the educational enterprise.
0: So, I mean, it sounds like that you, I mean, it's really a, a mashup of different skill sets that you have to have in order to do this. On the one hand, you have to have data technologists. On the secondly, you have to have pedagogy and understanding learning. Thirdly, you probably definitely have to understand administration and how to get that to happen and make effect change. And fourthly, in all the mapping you're doing, there's lots of sociology, if not philanthro- um, uh not philanthropy, um, uh, anthropology of understanding the evolution of people and, you know, the millennials and the different types of learning styles. Yeah, it is. Uh, I, I
1: mentioned uh, earlier that my mindset is uh, – Fully committed to doing something that seems almost impossible, um, and you're starting to see what I'm talking about. Yeah. That that is the intersection of all of that is incredibly difficult, and um, in fact, it sort of requires a group of people that are not just passionate and uh, and committed to to this domain, but that actually have an awful lot of time in in this domain. That's one of the one of the things that actually inspired me to jump out and start this business is seeing um, a lot of really well meaning, sort of wide eyed. What I now say with my gray hair are kids um, coming out of college trying to disrupt education because they've been a consumer of education for many years. And as far as they're concerned, that qualifies them to figure out what's next. And, in, in point of fact, as you mentioned, there's an enormous amount of, of insight that just takes a long time to come to that's necessary to try to accomplish something at this scale. And so, we're, uh, you know, interestingly, building a team, as you mentioned that is composed both of those who have spent a career uh, decades as I have in education specifically, as well as those for whom this is their first educational enterprise, uh, because there have actually never been data scientists of the highest caliber deployed against solving education problems. Software engineers and architects uh, that are the best of the best have really never been pointed at education as a domain to work on. Unfortunately, education is not, uh, as, a, uh, as a sort of enterprise, education has not tended to attract A-plus talent. Uh, and so, you know, part of the, 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 uh, the big picture here was, well, if we can great, uh, combine private capital, venture capital, Um, The kind of talent from across these different disciplines that you can attract uh, with the capitalization structure and ownership structure and incentive structure that's available in a startup, um, combine that with a group of people that have spent a career trying to solve some of these problems and so have Uh, Some of the the shorthand necessary to to move through them quickly and create these iterative cycles between deep domain experts and uh, really smart, thoughtful data scientists that have solved similar problems in other domains, we can potentially accelerate innovation across the board. So what we're doing is not about sort of shilling for a particular solution this kind of content works better or this sort of delivery modality works better. We're trying to just understand empirically, create a, an infrastructure that helps the entire system understand empirically which of those things is actually most effective and for which students specifically, uh, and then create interfaces that help sort of deliver that insight to the front lines.
0: When you look at uh, a student bodies, <clears throat> I, I, I mean, when you're doing the mapping of them, I mean, how many categories are there I mean you know. <laughs> that's a
1: great question um, you know that you have to uh, this is one of those areas where it's tricky we We all have our own construction of what matters in evaluating whether a student's likely to be successful or not uh, and then there's what the data says, and often those things are not nearly the same as one another classically in the in the u s um, we've tended to track and report against uh, data points that are required from an accreditation or, or oversight perspective. And so when you take what is effectively compliance-oriented data and try to operationalize it, you find out that you haven't been tracking everything that you should, that some of what you met, thought mattered actually does not. Um, and so you know much of, of what we track in American higher education from a background and demographic perspective, sort of ethnicity, gender, age, socioeconomic status, et cetera, are not things that are nearly as important to understanding a student's trajectory as, as you would assume given the prominence that we give them in our, uh, in our reporting and tracking, um, particularly when you actually start to pull in data about what students do. Because behaviors are dramatically more informative of a student's trajectory. And in particular, recent behaviors and consistent behaviors are much more relevant to where they're going than where they've come from per se. And really it's kind of the intersection of those things uh, that is most compelling. So when we go about trying to figure out how are we going to um, categorize the data or the students that are involved, we try wherever we can to let the data do that work for us. And then we go in and try to understand why the clustering and and segmenting is happening the way that it is. So specifically, our starting point, every time we pull in data from all these multiple different systems about lots of different students at a new institution, we start with a data segmentation exercise. So the first thing we have to figure out is what data is available about each segment of students. Because a brand-new student, you would have a very different set of data available from a continuing student. And if you throw them all in together, you will lose – the value of data that you only have on a subsegment of students. So we actually have to do our modeling segment by segment. Often uh, there's anywhere from 8 to 15 different segments in any one institution against which we build predictive models that can kind of make best use of the data that's available about those specific students. Similarly, we then go through a clustering exercise, which, again, is not, not based on our own uh, perception of how students cluster. It's based on the activities or behaviors or backgrounds that organically separate them by uh, success level. So that's sort of the second step beyond the data segmentation is the clustering. And we end up in in most cases building between 25 and 40 different predictive models for each institution so that we are being as specific and relevant to each of those types of students as shown in the data itself uh, as we possibly can. And the reason we're doing all of that is very much doing this the hard way Um, And the reason you do it the hard way is because to do it the easy way is, in some cases, I think worse than not doing it at all. Mm. Um, If you don't have that level of sophistication, you'll end up with a very blunt understanding of what correlated drivers are to student success. You'll never be able to get to causality. You'll never be able to get to a sufficient level of personalization uh, to help really improve decisions. Uh, and so that's that's part of frankly that's part of why we had to raise as much venture capital as we did mm-hmm. uh, is because doing this the hard way first before you can really you know deliver the benefit and the value associated with that is an expensive proposition uh, and not one we could ask schools to fit the bill for kind of preemptively before we had
0: on our hypothesis. Is it the kind of thing that scales? I mean, let's say you know you've got your eighty buckets, uh, your eighty, uh, your forty. Sorry, um, different. Predictive components or different categories you got, you got. Can yep. you then? How quickly and easily can you transform or, tr- or convert for other universities?
1: Yeah, the uh, it, we are finding that it does scale quite a bit. There are uh, there are a relatively small number of systems of record in American higher education institutions, and a number of those same players actually have quite a strong presence internationally as well. Uh, and so, the hardest part of this work is actually the data ingestion. So ingesting and normalizing data from all these different systems is Mm. the most time-consuming element of all of this. Once you've created the approach that I described um, around segmentation and clustering, you can automate each of those steps so that every time we implement a new institution, we're building brand new models for that institution, but we're doing it in a way that involves pressing a series of buttons Mm -hmm. against code that we've already written. Sure. Um, The other element of what we're able to do, uh, and this this was fascinating to me, I had no idea well, I knew very little of what I have told you in the last five minutes, uh, 18 months ago when I started this business. Um, but I certainly didn't know that uh, that the raw data itself would be as relatively useless as it is. Um, most of what drives our models are what we call derived features. And this is one of those areas where domain expertise actually comes into play in this work. So a raw data input would be, for example, uh the grades that you've earned over your first two years in college, right? And even the, uh, a calculation on that, your GPA, your cumulative GPA, that's something most institutions would track about a student. Um, what we do with that is we create a number of derived features on top of that. So literally one of which is, a, is a, what we call a GPA vector, consumes all the grades you've ever gotten, when you got all of them, weights them for recency and consistency and trajectory, and creates a single value between zero and one that's actually dramatically more predictive than any of those raw data inputs would have been. And so because we're doing that with every institution that we go to, we're getting smarter and smarter at deriving features that pull value out of these these raw features. And literally 95% of the, the variables that drive our predictive models are are variables that we have derived. So another way to think about that is you might say, well, I have a hypothesis that students who stay enrolled for five consecutive terms are dramatically more likely to complete, where we can calculate a, a variable, derive a feature that is just that, and then test that hypothesis in an automatic way. So domain expertise is required to sort of create those hypotheses. Same thing with the GPA vector I mentioned. There's a hypothesis underneath that, that consistency matters and that recency matters. You create the feature based on that hypothesis, let the data tell you whether that feature matters or not. Uh, And then once you've done that, you've got a great starting point for the next institution you go do this with. You're able to deliver dramatically more value out of their data than they could ever deliver out of their data themselves.
0: And I've got to imagine that the school, the high schools themselves also have relevance. So, you know, a 3.7 out of X high school versus a 3.7 out of Y high school is, is radically is anyway different, of course. But then, right. I mean, do you have to understand the high schools' methods and all that as well?
1: Yeah, this is uh, you know the starting point is making the best use of the available data that you can, uh, and the data that's available about high schools is different, as you would imagine, for different high schools and for different higher ed institutions. Uh, but as I mentioned, the, the vision here is uh, is absolutely a CADA career. Uh, vision, or K to Gray, as I think applies in both your case and mine. <laughs> Me um, more than you. And <laughs> and, uh, and I think that's the, the next step there is moving into those two kind of adjacent markets, right? Being able to pull better, deeper information out of students' K to 12 experiences and use those to inform better, more specific recommendations in their post-secondary experience, and then ultimately taking... Uh, students' experiences in their post-secondary and training those models, not just on graduation and completion, but on successful placement uh, and and uh, career trajectory as well. So we think there's obvious kind of extensions in both directions around that initial higher ed
0: entry point. All right. Um, uh, you know, this is fascinating. But um, so want to circle in on, on on there's so many different models or that are being talked about I mean, let's say that most institutions—if you go to France—that we call the the education institution a mammoth, as in it's mm. it's huge, old, and and it'll never move and it'll die out. <clears throat> Le mammoth, yeah. we call it. There are so many new things happening: e-learning, blended learning, serious games. What's your perspective on what's working and how do you navigate this? I mean, I think if I'm if I'm in a business and and you know, I think that. You know, might one of mentors' strong recommendations and f- beliefs is that companies need to know how to have constant ongoing learning in order <clears> to be successful. And, and it needs to be the responsibility of the employees to be doing it. All right, so great. But now I'm in HR. What kinds of things are working? And, and so from your perspective, seeing that really in such a, a wide scale, how do, you, how do you make head or tail of what's the best to do and implement?
1: Yeah, well, honestly, the uh, the sort of increasingly dizzying array of options available to students was a, a big piece of the impetus for me in in starting this business. Um, Bill Gates wrote a great uh, letter from he he writes uh, a letter from, on the behalf of his foundation every year, and his his letter two years ago focused on the importance of measurement in driving uh, and even allowing innovation right so if if we're ever seeking to innovate in a category and we don't know what outcome we're trying to create um and or we're not effectively measuring whether that outcome has been attained, it is almost impossible uh for us to actually move forward right because it's just a bunch of noise and that was my concern i I was thrilled as a sort of education a lifelong education innovator to see the the pace with which we were uh you know, sort of inventing and trying new models, accelerate, uh, but, but simultaneously horrified that we might kind of throw out everything that we've ever known and done, uh, and exchange it for a bunch of new stuff, which is utterly untested without any empirical foundation for really figuring out what works and what doesn't work and for whom. And so that's, that's why I jumped in and, and started Civitas learning in the first place. I think, uh, each of the these innovations will be a really valuable and important piece of the educational ecosystem. Um, you know, in, in the states, we uh, we talk about um, we've been, we started the conversation around MOOCs. I think in entirely the wrong place. Uh, it was our most elite institutions, kind of on high, suggesting that their learning was the best on the planet, and they were going to make it available to the third world via these sort of unsupported online learning environments. If you spent your career helping expand access to education, you understand on the face of it, that's insane. You're not going to provide uh, hundreds of millions of people with an educational experience that, that Gives them access that they didn't have before. If there are literally no supports for those learners whatsoever, those are the learners that need the most supports, right? right. The the student who went to at Stanford or Harvard or or MIT could could fight through nearly anything. Um, but that isn't when you're, when you're focused on the base of the pyramid and how do we expand access to uh, post-secondary education to as many people as we can, you have to get really smart about how you provide the right kinds of supports uh, underneath that work. Uh, and so we have the same view uh, of uh, American higher ed, I'd say most people in this country do, uh, that you have in, in France. Um, it's actually been a, a benefit for me in, in, uh, from a competitive perspective because most venture capitalists would not write checks against a business that had to convince higher ed institutions to change their behavior there are two things they thought they knew about higher education is they don't have any money and two is they can't make a decision to save their lives um, we've proven that neither of those things is actually true when the uh, when the problem domain you're working on is sort of urgent enough um, they they will find funds and they can make decisions quickly as long as you're sort of well aligned with the change that they're trying to make happen from a from a mission and vision perspective and I think the institutions are seeing the same thing that you described. So you've got competency-based learning, you've got online learning, blended learning, you've got MOOCs, you've got Khan Academy, you've got all of these different attempts to, to sort of move the needle. And institutions, in many cases, I think are just as bewildered as parents are and as students are about what the right choice is for them. But, of course, there is no right answer. That's mm-hmm. We're all trying to find a headline. What is, the, you know, what is higher education 2.0 going to look like? It's going to look like a little bit of all of these different things. Um, and and the right answer is not the same for every student at every point in their educational journey uh, on every subject or topic, right? There isn't any one right answer. And so I think if you if you have that perspective on it and you can be thoughtful about, you know, what is it that I'm trying to learn? Or as an employer, what is it that I'm trying to get my, my employees to learn? Um, you know, my sort of first... Guidance or caution would be figure out exactly what measurable outcome you're hoping to achieve um, and work backwards from that, mm-hmm. because that has been uh, crushing from an innovation perspective to us kind of across uh, our educational ecosystem, the lack of that infrastructure uh, and that focus on on where we're really trying to get to uh, and how we're going to measure whether we've been successful or not. Uh, I think it can be really blurring in uh in mm-hmm. in our best attempts to innovate
0: all right you mentioned you know people who go to these wonderful institutions like you did and i where we have an ability to just absorb whatever you know because we have that concentration that uh the passion or whatever it might be the qualities that we have it sounds like there's a there are other there's other types of uh, you know of learning you're saying about but the one thing I usually like to think about is the accountability of the learner for his or her learning. Yeah. And so while the super ambitious, you know, hyper, you know, high graded and all those, maybe it has it somewhere in their DNA. Uh, how do you play with accountability? And because you know, that's got to be I mean, if, if the learner doesn't want to learn, then bah, you got nowhere. Mm-hmm. So how much does accountability play into that? Well,
1: so, you know, I've, uh, I've affectionately re- referred to the, the work that uh, my alma mater and yours do as turning gold into gold, um, which, good for them, uh, and and God knows I had a wonderful uh, undergraduate experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, but, but reality is they, they're identifying those that are not only able to do the work but relatively unstoppable in their pursuit of success on the incoming... Uh, at the moment of admission, right? That's the moment at which they actually are able to say, okay, anyone who would be really difficult to deal with is not ever going to show up here. So the the job is fundamentally a a different job at that stage. Um, I've actually spent my entire career much more focused on, you know, what I'd call sort of base of the pyramid challenges, which from a, from a volume and scale perspective, um, we all know that most of the volume in a pyramid is, is uh, towards the base. The in American higher education is about 4,000 uh, accredited institutions, uh, of which the top 30 or 40 would meet this sort of hyper-selectivity requirement. So it's very much a 99% versus 1% challenge. And the challenge with the rest of them is actually not um, – I, again, I, I, won't, I won't try to characterize there being one problem um, or one strength that those at the top of that pyramid have. Uh, but I will say that it is a – as much as anything, I've seen this in my work, it's a function of the environment from which you came and the natural sort of supports and mindset that that creates. And what's happening right now is we move from you know an industrial economy to a knowledge economy. Higher education infrastructures around the world were designed to educate a pretty narrow slice of the adult population, right? Because a relatively narrow percentage of careers required post-secondary education and the real way, um, and and now we see that in the knowledge economy, it's uh, without secondary training of some kind, there are only so many places you can go and only so many things you can do, and that that vector is only moving in one direction going forward, right? So mm-hmm. the challenge we have, to me, the much more interesting challenge um, is how do we retrain really large chunks of the population. And how do we expand the way we think about post-secondary education in a way that takes a much bigger percentage of the human capital that's available in our population broadly sure. and deploys, uses learning and knowledge to deploy that effectively? So, you know, we talk here in the States about 6-1 um, kids and 1-1 one, one kids in higher education. And 6-1 kid is what I was, maybe what you were as well, uh, which is a kid with six adults Focused on their educational success, two parents and four grandparents, uh, all of whom have spent their whole lives talking about college. Many times, talking about their own experiences in college. The the amount of sort of guardrails and safety net that's available. I was 18 years old, so it was time to go to college. I'm 22, so it's time to be done and move on into the world of work. That is not the situation for this next generation of what we now call sort of non-traditional higher education students. Here in the States, uh, 15, 20 years ago, 75% of of those in higher education fit what we call a traditional model, which means they were 18 to 22 years old. They are on a residential campus. Their parents were responsible primarily for their finances. That was 75% of the higher ed population. Today, it's 25% of the higher ed population. 75% are what we used to call non-traditional students. They have a career, they're commuting to a campus, they may have a family already, they may be on their second chance, their second time around, and many of them are those one-one students, which means they maybe have a single parent who's focused on their education, kind of keeping them on track and moving. That single parent may not have gone through higher education themselves. So everything that we all take for granted, I know you recently uh, got to enjoy a, uh, a college tour Um, So far beyond the the scope of imagination for, for these kids. And so they walk in often with a mindset that I'm not really even sure college is for me. And at the first sign of trouble, it's not really a matter of not wanting to or not sort of taking ownership for their own direction but they don't have the same level of belief because it hasn't been built into them from the start. Uh, And that's where I think better decision support, particularly early, where we can sort of deploy all these stories of students who have come before against the students that are maybe hanging on by a little thinner thread today, gives us a chance to really kind of move the needle dramatically.
0: So cool. And for Civitas Learning, the the sales process, is it one where you have to, you know, co-call, go out and sell it, or is the government helping you? Or are students coming and say, hey, university guys, get these people in. How's, it, how's that flying?
1: Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm interested in, in your take on our approach. I know branding is, uh, is a particular area of expertise for you. Um, Civitas, Latin for citizen or uh, community. And we really started with this view that this was a big enough problem. and and very much not a zero-sum game, right? Student success is something every institution of every type is interested in, that we figured we could put together a group of institutions that don't normally work with one another particularly often, don't have much cause to, uh, but the severity of this problem and the opportunity to solve it with kind of data scale and insight was big enough that they would all move through this work together. Um, And so we have community colleges and four-year public institutions and small liberal arts private schools and for-profit or, or public private sector online institutions all engaged in the earliest stages of this work together. Um, we have uh, we have had to be, by necessity, pretty selective, actually, in terms of who we work on. So cold calling certainly never. Um, we're, we're lucky to, again, have a, a few folks that started the company with me who've got a uh, long, deep history in higher ed and so have a pretty good uh, fingertip feel for who the most innovative institutions are who the administrators are that are most likely to lean forward into this kind of work uh, and so we really have tried to build a brand around this this common mission um, and and the sense of community and and sort of so the selectivity that comes with that as well right we're we're being selective in some ways in in the opposite way that that many higher ed institutions are selective um, we're trying to work with the institutions that have the right combination of a big lift to make, a challenge of how do I drive great student success and and academic results while maintaining a commitment to my access-oriented mission? Not doing so by just creaming the the top off, but Mm -hmm. just becoming better as an educational institution. How do we find institutions where that intersection is real and they live it every day and sort of bring them along with us into this work? Um, We've gone from uh, six institutional partners to 24 in the last six months. Uh, And so I I think the the resonance of that when we literally we spend essentially no money on marketing, Um, you spend some time on our website, you probably noticed that Uh, there's not a lot of not a lot of attempt to sort of uh, make the story um, distillable and consumable to you know you won't find a lot of sort of features and functionality of the product set on the website. It's really dramatically more aspirational. These are the problems we're solving. Learning together is our tagline. We are literally learning together with the institutions we're working with on how to best deploy this technology and talent, uh, skills and, and applications that we've built so far to move the needle. And for us, we have a we sort of have this rallying cry around a million more mission. Um, million more students a year in the U.S. getting post-secondary credentials is our target. And that's a target that was established by necessity. So a number of foundations, as well as the Department of Education, Department of Labor have all triangulated around the same number, which is back to what I mentioned before with the yeah. knowledge economy's increasing demands for education. There's a million student gap every year by 2020 between the number of students our post-secondary infrastructure is on pace to produce and the number the economy needs to remain successful and competitive globally.
0: Yeah, well, this you have an objective that you can measure against. I right. <laughs> noted that's right. But exactly. at this, yeah, exactly. I mean, at the same time, you've got to have you have to imagine that the government, or you know, bipartisan as hopefully they could be, uh, is interested in in this kind of a project. So, is there? Do you yeah. have Washington involved, or how do you? How do you... Um,
1: we we have we have not gotten the federal government involved uh, as yet. Certainly, a number of our most of our institutional partners are public entities, uh, publicly funded. Um, and so there have been some some conversation with legislatures, state legislatures across the country, uh, kind of in support of that. There's also a part of the move that is uh, driving some of the uh, early adoption and energy around retention-oriented work here in the States is based on um, some changing funding formulas that used to pay schools or, or uh, fund schools exclusively based on how many students enrolled and are now moving to funding them based on a combination of how many students enroll and how many students are successful. And so that has kind of increased the uh, the pressure and the urgency around uh, academic outcomes. That's not something we are driving. That's something that's just happening organically across the country as, frankly, politicians and legislation, legislators are anxious to see some more uh, some more return for that investment. Uh, they're they're looking to see institutional outcomes across the higher ed infrastructure get better, uh, and so they're they're starting to put some teeth around that. Back to the the issue of measurement, foundations are also incredibly interested in this work, as you might imagine. We have great relationships to the, at a few of the, the largest foundations that have uh, major work in education. Uh, usually, our 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 goal there is never to take direct funding from foundations ourselves, but to work with them to help set up kind of in-field grants so that institutions that might be predisposed to work on this problem set but don't have the resources available could get some level of subsidy to kind of get started down this path.
0: You know, just listening to you, it just strikes me also, when I think about United States, generally speaking – I think of them as extremely innovative in terms of educational styles, techniques, and, and, uh, and tools. I think of them as being extremely strong in university, college level, you know, yep. around the world, liberal arts. Where, where they, frankly, suck is generally at the high school level. When you compare it to <clears throat> countries around the world, at the high school level, that's where there's the biggest, for me, there's the biggest just oof, gap. Yep. Where, I mean, I'm, I know you say K to career, is there how quickly where, where can we go with getting high schools to be better at this as well?
1: Yeah, well, I think uh, you know having spent as I mentioned uh, about half my career on the on the K to twelve side, uh, one of the things that occurred to me, you know, back to this concept of working backwards from the goal, um, was that the where we really fall down, at least in the U.S. system, is in these transition points between uh, different institutions. And so the disconnect that happens between high school and college in the U.S. is shocking. Even in, in regions where the number of students that go from one institution to another is enormous, the percentage that come directly from one K-12 system to a community college or a four-year is incredible, and yet the amount of information that gets shared between them is really minimal. <coughs> Excuse me. So the thought was, if we want to start from the end and work backwards— Maybe we should figure out what a really well-prepared post-secondary student looks like, incoming post-secondary student, right? Whether, whether we want them prepared for a four-year liberal arts education or for a two-year vocational program or even for a certificate, um, what are the characteristics of someone who is well-prepared to succeed? Whether it's the school they went to, the classes they took, how they did in those classes, the resources they were exposed yeah. to, et cetera. And so nice. the best... No one's ever mapped that before yeah that's kind of what we're doing right now so if we you know evaluate sort of 15 million college students which mm-hmm. is about what our data scale is right now that have gone before start to get a picture of what they looked like when they were sort of 18 and done with uh, with their secondary education the whole potential of analytics is to look at historical data like that mm-hmm. and then build a model that allows you to back up the insights from right. that analysis onto an actionable timeline Let and so when we way. get into k-12 it'll be from that foundation right That's here's beautiful. what a good post-secondary student looks like let's move the advice on how to make that happen back to a timeline where students and teachers and administrators can do something
0: about it so charles i hear i hear the family calling um so you're in 24 schools uh, 24 universities. Uh, the yep. international just quickly on the international level, how can we hope to have you over here soon uh, in europe what, what's the what's the plan in the international
1: yeah, yeah. Of, uh, yeah we've got a, we've got a fair amount of inbound interest uh, from uh, both uh, Europe uh, from South America um, even from uh, South Africa and Australia. We we haven't made that step yet, but I suspect it's not uh, it's not too far away. The it, decision making is actually much more uh, consolidated overseas. In The U.S. we have 4,000 institutions literally making 4,000 different decisions. Uh, that's not the way higher education works in, in much of the rest of the world. So, um, I you know I think our intention has been, and I should mention by the way, the 24 institutions we have right now are not just individual institutions. Some of them are actually statewide. Uh, networks of schools. So we have about 260 campuses that are uh, that are in our network right now and the institutions we're working with here in the states currently serve a million active students. Um, so the opportunity to move that needle is is pretty substantial already. Uh, but I would say uh, within the next 12 months we likely will have our first deployments uh, overseas. Um, we have already added our first uh, Mexican institution. Uh, just last quarter, uh, and my suspicion is that an institution or two uh, on the continent is probably not too far behind.
0: Well, it's going to bring in all sorts of new types of data coding and new languages. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm with you. It's a glorious mission, Charles. Um, so I really appreciate it. It's great to talk to you. I mean, I, I actually, I'm burning to ask more questions, but I'm going to have to call it quits because is right. calling. How can anyone uh, track you down, follow you? What's the best way to reach you?
1: Sure, so my, uh, my Twitter handle is at Charles underscore E-D-U. Uh, that's probably the best way to find me. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Uh, last name is Thornberg and Civitas Learning. Uh, either of those will, uh, will lead you directly uh, to me, and I'd love to hear, hear from folks that are interested in the work. One other note I'd like to make, uh, we, we've started a kind of community uh, learning and sharing space on this work, uh, the website is CivitasLearningSpace.com. Uh, There's some great stories from our current partners, from potential future partners, and just from thought leaders broadly uh, in, uh, in the area of predictive analytics and improving student success in higher education. So another good resource to check
0: out. And participate we should. Charles, Indeed. super. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Uh, get over your cold. Thanks for uh, working with me on that. And uh, have a lovely Sunday. and We'll be in touch.
1: Thanks so much, Minter. It was a pleasure to speak to you. I look forward to our next conversation.
0: Sweet. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Internet Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please rate it in iTunes, and don't forget to click the handy Facebook like button or to tweet it out. In the meantime, please come join the conversation at The Mindset or catch me on Twitter at M-D-I-A-L. Happy trails. I'm a convince man.